0: morning. I'm glad to see you all, all here, bright, shining faces. My name is uh, George. I am one of the pastors here at the Mount. And we're going to be looking at John five nineteen through 29. Let me go ahead and read that for us. It says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. So in case you don't know me, I really, 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 really like languages. Don't worry, we're not going to be talking about languages in this sermon. Um, But I really do love them. Um, Everyone is like beautiful in its own ways. You have French and it's, you know, romantic tones. Russian, I actually find kind of has the same tones. Most people don't agree. Um, But one of the hardest things about learning a language Um, is getting past the desire for one-to-one correspondence. Um, Sure, there's, you know, we have simple things, you know, usually that match up well enough, things like, you know, water or human, Um, most languages will have a word for go or a word for eat, Um, but even something as simple as cake, now I'm hungry, Um, but even something as simple as cake, when you go from, like, German to English, there's no equivalent, it doesn't work the same. So while we may have the concept readily available, there usually just isn't a right word that succinctly does what we in our natural mother tongue would want to do, or what we would want to say. And don't even start on trying to convey like poetry or um, linguistic play puns. No correspondence. Um, Something always seems to get lost. And, And how much less when we start doing words like God holy, just. We have to deal with this enculturated, how embedded it is in a setting, in a context, in a history. That correspondence is a difficult thing to deal with. I am going somewhere. Thinking about our passage, we we really have to say, who is this Jesus? Uh, We stand on the far side of multiple quests to uncover a real Jesus from Scripture, uh, but none of, us has given, none of them have, has given us any more trustworthy of a picture than we see in the Gospels. The early church, uh, no less than our modern churches, um, have to confront those who would just as soon make a clean break with the Old Testament and only look to the new. Um, people who would see a cold and austere God the Father. But a loving and warm and jovial son, a legalistic father, somebody a relic of the past, um, but a grace-filled son who is a God of the new. And then there's, of course, the other side of the spectrum, those who are fine with seeing this big, powerful God, but want nothing to do with a personal redeemer, a personal savior, somebody who connects with us intimately. Even when we give lip service to the oneness of father and son, of treating them as co-equal, we're apt to be hoodwinked into a view um, of the father and son that's on our own terms, right? We make Jesus the the bearer of our pet concern, um, the anti-capitalist Jesus, uh, the pacifist Jesus, the gluten-free Jesus, um, the all love, no wrath Jesus. Um, Lately, the God who we breathe in and he gives us warm fuzzies and always tells us nice things about ourselves, Jesus. Who is this Jesus? That's really what Jesus answers in today's passage. He tells us exactly who he is. So to get a glimpse of Jesus is to see the Father. That's what we're going to see today. I mean, if we're ever looking for a one-to-one correspondence, in Jesus we find it. The Father's cares and concerns are the Son's cares and concerns. The Father's work is the Son's work. The Father's power and authority are the Son's power and authority. As much as the Father is Lord of his people and the Lord of creation, we're going to see that Jesus is Lord. Oh, but how to make the wonders of the relationship between God the Father and the Son translate into human understanding. How to express just two-thirds of the interworking of the Trinity. Jesus does it in three ways. Asserting truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you all three times. Let's jump right back into the text then. We're going to start at verse 19. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. In last week's passage, we read that the Jews were upset because in their words, Jesus was making himself equal to God, and depending on our background, where you come from, um, your, your past experience in church, we might jump to the wrong conclusions. We might think that he is talking on like Trinitarian terms, that they're equal, co-equal, in one, and that's really not what the Jews are actually implying. They're, they're saying something closer to the idea that he's making himself independent of God on the same footing, independent, able within his own power to judge and rule and whatnot. And Jesus isn't saying that. And they hope to catch him in in it. But Jesus does not answer the way that they expect him to. Rather than reject their accusation, he says, no, let's answer this. Let's go fully into it. And so we have this truly, truly. He says, when I act, it's because it is exactly how the father would act. It is exactly what the Father would do. And not only would do, is doing. It's exactly what the Father is doing. If I'm doing it, you can rest assured, this is what the Father intends to be done. When he acts, it glorifies the Father rather than stealing his glory. He's not independent in stealing glory. He's connected with the Father in a unique way. So the two are never at cross purposes with one another. God the Son does what he sees the Father doing. So I want you to see how Jesus fleshes this out. Um, Verses 19b uh, through 23 contain four, four statements, F-O-R statements. Four supporting ideas for why Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. The first is the shortest, but has a ton of potential that lies just beneath the surface. Uh, John five nineteen b reads for uh, for whatever the father does that the son does likewise. Uh, while Jesus may have rejected the idea that he is independent of the father, he suggests here that he actually agrees with their accusatory wording. The son does what he sees the father do, and whatever the father does, the son does it too. Well, that's a pretty huge claim. Um, he basically has said that he is able to do what the father is doing in power he's equal with the father so rather than reject their claim no 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 no, that would be blasphemy he's no 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 yeah i'm equal with god i have the power god has given me i do what the father does because i see what the father does and i'm able to do likewise briefly um, this speaks to what theolo- theologians call subordination Um, which is a huge topic that goes way deeper than we can cover um, in this one passage today. But to go just a little bit further, uh, there's usually a question of how Jesus can be subordinate, um, submitted if he is equal in nature with the Father. And Jesus gives pretty much a succinct answer right here. He just cuts right through. He says he is subordinate. He does what he sees the Father doing, and he is equal. He has the power, the ability to do whatever the Father does. The second supporting idea is found in verse 20. Jesus says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. He starts off pointing out that the father out of love shows the son what he's doing. When Jesus says that he's going to do greater things that's going to make them marvel, he's not trying to be a a show-off. He's not uh, trying to garner attention through marvels. He's saying that there is a work to be done. God is showing me that work. There's going to be things that you have not even imagined. You're, You're getting grumpy over a healing on the Sabbath. I'm going to do way more than that. So the master craftsman, God himself, instructs his son in everything he does. We don't want to press that image too far, but if you can imagine Jesus, the carpenter, having trained under his own father... He watches what he does. He gets the trade secrets. He knows exactly how the father does what he does, does his skill. Jesus says, it's just like that. I watch very, very clearly what the father does, and I do likewise. I've seen everything the father does, so I'm able to reproduce it properly. He's got the inside track. He's got all the trade secrets. And then that moves us on to how would a loving son respond to this love from his father. What does John usually say? If you love me, you will obey my words, yeah. So that's exactly what the son does, he is obedient. So we find in John's gospel that Jesus is obedient. Jesus is the whole power of God, obediently executing what God is doing. The Jews are here all up in a tizzy, over him, healing on the Sabbath, but Jesus tells them they're going to be mortified when they see what God has in store. There's still a couple of miraculous signs to go in John. Um, There's healings, uh, there's Lazarus coming very shortly, Um, and finally, of course, Jesus himself will be raised from the dead, victorious Lord and Redeemer, judge of the living and the dead. They have the opportunity here and now to show where their loyalties lie. Will Jesus be their Lord, or will he not? So then, third supporting idea, that Jesus does only what he sees the Father doing is found in verse 21, where Jesus says, "'For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, "'so also the Son gives life to whom he will.'" If Jesus were mincing words before, which I don't think he was, but if he were, this is a pretty shocking claim. Jesus already said that he does whatever he sees the father doing. And in case it needed any clarification, raising to, uh, raising to life from the dead is one of those things. But what should shock us more is actually the statement that the son gives life to whom he will. About the closest thing in the Old Testament is going to be some of the stories around Elijah. And no one would suggest that it was to whom Elijah willed. He was simply doing what God said. But here Jesus says, whomever I will. The power to give life, to restore life was God's alone. So Jesus claims both the power and the prerogative to raise from the dead. If the Jews expected him to back down when they accuse him of making himself out equal to God, they have seriously underestimated him. He's taken their accusation and he's run with it. He does what the Father shows him. He's able to do what the Father shows him. The power of life from the dead is his to wield. And then finally, he gives the last support, and that's in verses 22 and 23. They read, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus does what the Father does because the authority to do so has been delegated to him. God has said, that's your right and privilege. There's a ton more that could be said, but for for Jesus' point and our own help this morning, the Son is equal with the Father. That's the bottom line. And to the Son is granted the right and privilege to judge, to decide who is his and who is not. His work... The very same work that has the Jerusalem elite all up in a tizzy is Jesus simply demonstrating who he is. His desire, his purpose, what he spoke of in, in John 3, his purpose is that the disciples will believe. That's his aim. That's going to make some people unhappy. It's going to make some people reject his message. That's not his purpose. He doesn't want them to reject the message, but they will. That's the result of him being made manifest to his disciples. But did, did you catch the reason for that judgment? Being turned over to the son? It, it's so that the son will receive equal honor with the father. That's pretty astounding to me. Um, in Isaiah 42, God tells Israel that he will not share glory with another. But Jesus says, God the Father has gone out of his way to make certain that the Son receives the honor He's due. In Isaiah 45, God swears that every knee will bow and every tongue swear that in him alone is deliverance and strength. And then we read Paul echoing John, echoing Jesus. Philippians, being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know this a lot to take in. Um, breathe a little. Actually, breathing for myself. Jesus is accused of presenting himself as equal to the Father. And Jesus does essentially more than you could possibly know. The God to whom every knee will bow, it's me. The God who deserves worship as Lord and deliverer, it's me. Jesus does only what the Father is doing because the Father shows him everything, because he does all that the Father does, because he shares the same power to restore life, even fuller life because he has been granted the authority to judge. In short, Jesus is the Lord, it's that simple. That's why we gather for worship, because he's worthy of that worship. It's not just we come to worship God in a generic, we come to worship a risen Lord, who actually, even before rising, had the power of life within himself. We worship the Lord. So, since Jesus is the Lord, we should worship Jesus. Doesn't sound very high and lofty-minded, but it's the simple thing to take away from this. Since Jesus is Lord, we should worship him regularly, fervently, truthfully. That's why our first mission as a church is to treasure Jesus. He's worthy of that treasure. He's worthy of that worship. He deserves that worship because God has accorded him honor in keeping with the sacrifice. His obedience to death, even death on a cross, as Paul puts it, for his people. Because he is the son from eternity, not just from his baptism, not just from his resurrection. He was eternally the son. He deserves a primary place. As we talked in men's group yesterday, we gather to worship because he is worthy of that worship. So, maybe some ways that we can think about thinking through worship. And the first one is going to be Just our spiritual disciplines. What are we doing to make Jesus more present to our worship? To more on our mind as relevant, speaking to us day in and day out. So that looks like regular prayer. Personally, go to your closet, pray. Maybe not a closet, that seems weird now, but go to someplace and pray privately. Um, Being in his word. Worshiping on your own. Not, not in church, not with your family, but by yourself. Sit there, play a YouTube song. If you don't play an instrument, I don't play an instrument. But find opportunity to worship. Fast. Spend time quietly alone with God, praying, looking at Scripture, pouring over Scripture, letting Him inform you about who He is. Okay, so maybe individual spiritual discipline. The next thing I want to think about is how we worship Jesus as families. It'll apply to some more than others, uh, but we want our kids to know the Lord, right? So they need to see us worshiping in truth. They need to see us worshiping for real a Lord who is worthy of that worship. It's great to see, have them experience us worship Christ in the church. That's great. It's great for us to worship independently and privately where no one else can see it. It's important that our roommates, our spouses, our kids see us worship Christ for real in that much more intimate setting. He's worthy of that worship. And hopefully we desire for them to experience that as well. And then finally, gathering to worship as the body of Christ. We don't gather to be spoon-fed self-help or to boost our self-esteem. Although it's commonly treated as this, we don't gather as a body, it's not a gas station. We are not trying to fill up so that we can make it through another week. We gather as a church, and especially as we baptize, as we share the Lord's Supper, we gather to declare to one another that Jesus is Lord. Hopefully that reminder does carry us through difficult weeks, temptations, trials, but the point is to come together and declare together in all of our hearing to remind one another that Jesus is Lord. That's it. The gathering of the church declares also to a watching world that Jesus is Lord. So since Jesus is Lord, we should worship him. And as we're about to hear, we need to hear him with obedience. We don't need to just hear and listen and and do away with it, but we need to respond with obedience, and we'll look at that in verse 24, which says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So let's just sit on this for a moment, the whoever hears my word. Here are just a few examples he might have in mind that we could think through. He could be talking about the disciples. He could be talking about Nicodemus a couple chapters back at this point. The official from Cana and his family are certainly probably on his mind. Uh, The Samaritan woman and the other villagers. Those who have been healed like this guy from Bethesda. In the first part of the discourse, Jesus made a bunch of claims. Um, We read in John 3 that Jesus did not come with the purpose of judging. But as he shares who he is, there's a natural result. We already talked about it. There's a natural result. Some will choose life. Others will reject it. And in that light, I want you to see what his current audience is actually hearing. Uh, The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem have just accused him of breaking, if not rejecting, the Sabbath entirely heading in the direction of blasphemy, although they haven't accused him of it yet. As Jesus says, whoever hears my words, they're probably thinking Deuteronomy. I'll show you why in a second. Uh, As he continues and believes him who sent me, they're only more certain that Jesus is getting at this passage in Deuteronomy. And it's Deuteronomy 18. um, It's 15 through 19. We're going to read just a little portion of that. Moses speaking says... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then God continues in verse 18. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Whether the Jews are hearing Moses speak is debatable. Um, Jesus certainly intends them to hear Moses speak. In next week's passage, which I won't speak for all how that will come out, but Jesus flat out tells them that their accuser in judgment is going to be Moses himself. Jesus certainly has on mind this passage. He is the prophet to come, that they are to listen to the words of, that God gives him these words, and he is sharing them with the people. The one who ignores Moses is ignoring Jesus, and ultimately the Father. And because of that, they're already basically self-condemned. Jesus says he doesn't come for the purpose of judgment. They condemn themselves by rejecting the words that Jesus shares. Jesus' words give eternal life, but these leaders, those who should recognize him, reject him out of envy and blindness. Those two, envy and blindness. But to those who've listened, again, the official from Cana, the Samaritan woman, the disciples, the glorious truth is available now. Jesus' presence means that he extends life, spiritual life, now. Like changing our physical address one moment, we are in a resident of death. Resident of death. We're dead in our sins. The next moment, we hear Jesus' voice and believe the message, and bam. Bam. Resident of life in its fullest. That was a little bit unemotional. Bam! Resident of life in its fullest. It may not seem it on Monday morning, but God intends to work in his church here and now. So what do we say to that? Since Jesus is Lord, we should proclaim his word. His whole message. Not just just that part that makes us happy or that is suited for our own consumption and self-esteem, but we should preach his whole message to a waiting world. We should make disciples. We should baptize believers. So how do we do this? And the first thing I'm going to point out is we should love one another. This is the foundation of the gospel proclamation. It was the foundation for Jesus' message, the love that the Father had showed. Jesus then extends to his disciples. We should love one another. That should be the basis of our gospel proclamation. for we ever get to sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, we should be experiencing the gospel lived out in this community through love. Okay? So when we do membership interviews, we usually ask people to explain the gospel. And the good thing is, we have experienced a lot of good explanation of the gospel. It's always encouraging to hear new, new members, people coming forward for membership, share the gospel well and show their love for Christ through it. So the gospel, where do we start? We start with our fallen condition, right? We start with Adam having sinned, violated God's command, We start there. We start with his sin, but then we move quickly onto our own sin, our own choices that separate us from God. So what do we do about it? We have Jesus here presenting himself as the one who can give life. If we would just hear his word, respond to it, accept the Father's message about who Jesus is, we can experience new life here and now. We don't have to wait for the future. There's certainly more to come in the future, but we can experience life, new life, now. Well, let's go on to the last truly, truly I say to you from Jesus. In verse 25, he starts, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. An hour is coming and is now here. With that short phrase, we get a glimpse at overlapping timelines in the mind of Jesus. Verses 25 through 27, there's a blurring of the present and of the future. A blurring of the spiritual life we can experience now and the resurrection life we're promised. We must see that the dead he is talking about Those who will hear his voice are not just those who have died and await the resurrection, but rather it is. We've already mentioned the Samaritan woman, the official from Cana, Peter and Andrew, John and the rest of the disciples. These are the dead who will hear and live. Not just the physically dead, but the spiritually dead that Jesus has come to deliver. He's overlapping. He's seeing their resurrection life lived out now, and the future resurrection life to come. And he knows us so well, so he offers two more encouragements. Uh, First, God, the God of Abraham, the God of the living, who has life in his very nature, dependent on no one, gives that same kind of life to the Son from eternity. We aren't like that. God breathed into us to give us life. God sustains all of creation to give us life. We don't have life in ourselves. We're always dependent. But we can rest assured that our Savior, our advocate, our judge, has life as part of his very nature. At the other encouragement, God has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment. This sounds pretty dark. We don't like to think about judgment. But this is such an encouragement. The Son who calls us his own, who is promised never to leave us or forsake us, that's our judge. I'd like to have a judge in my pocket like that as well. Not to say that Jesus is in our pocket. <laughs> not just for the long hope for future, but what an encouragement now as we face temptation towards sin in our own bodies. The judge stands already having given us a message of, not condemned, my own, my name written on you. Um, as we face world powers opposed to the spread of God's kingdom, you're mine. Don't fear them. I love you. And then Jesus brings it to the last day. Um, He was talking blurred. Now we see as he starts, he he talks about it differently. He says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, what did he leave out? A time, an hour is coming, but he doesn't say end is now. An hour is coming. So now he switches gears. He's been talking Blurred timeline, now he's looking to the future. Since Jesus is Lord, we should accept the life he offers now. We should experience resurrection life, at least a taste of it, now. We shouldn't put it off for the future. We shouldn't hide out on, as Paul puts it, I guess, on a roof, just waiting for the Lord to appear. We need to experience resurrection life now. And the question is, what do you think Of Jesus the Jesus who utters these words do you trust him do you believe on his own assertion on his own statements and by his works that he's done that he actually is Lord that he is actually the judge living and the dead will you trust John's testimony about him will you trust the disciples testimony about him will you trust the church's testimony through history about him Will you hear out a friend who wants to share it with you? We really as Christians should be careful not to neglect what we hear in God's word. Um, I think that's Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 says it perfectly. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We have it laid out. Jesus says, it's me, I'm Lord, Are you going to believe me? Are you going to trust that I am who I said I am? So for those that don't know Christ, the invitation is sitting out there from Jesus. But it doesn't end there. As believers, we have that same invitation to life minute by minute offered. Will we believe him? Will we take him at his word and receive that resurrection life to live out following Jesus? So what has Jesus told us in this passage? He's told us it is right and proper for his people to accept his words and work as God's words and work. Jesus' words are the Father's words. Jesus does the work of the Father. Since Jesus is Lord, we should worship Jesus. Since Jesus is Lord, we should proclaim his word. Since Jesus is Lord, we should accept the life that he offers now. But what's more, he truly loves us. As the Father loves the Son, as the Father loves us, Jesus loves us. We can come to him and truly rest. Truly rest, secure that he is our, what they say, refuge. That he's our deliverer, but he's our refuge. Place we can run to and trust we will be safe. His love is not a whim, it's a settled love. It's full of grace and kindness and mercy and patience. He's led us this far. Since Jesus is Lord, we're free to return that love without fear. We won't be rejected, we won't be pushed away because He's Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word this morning. God, to get a glimpse of you. God, may we see Jesus clearly. May we know the love he has for us. May we respond to him as Lord. Jesus, we give you all glory and honor. We, we can't make ourselves right before God on our own effort. We can't even make the first step to approaching God without your presence in our lives. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to go to the cross, to die in our place, to rise again, that we might experience that same life. Jesus, we ask you only to give us a little bit of faith, to trust you, to hear your word and respond obediently. God, we pray that you would send your word out. Help us to hear it. Help us to love one another. Help us to share that love. Share the message of a coming kingdom. Of life in the here and now. Of access to the throne room of God now. Help us to share that with the world around us. God, we praise you. Jesus, we lift you up in our our minds, in our thoughts, in our hopes. We turn it all to you. In Jesus' name, amen.